Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. Thank you for joining me for episode 15, where I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Bob Bancroft. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to ask for your help in supporting my podcast. There is a way to contribute financially, but that's not what I'm asking right now. There's a Shared Ground Facebook page, which you can find by searching Shared Ground Podcast. And if you would take a second to like the page, as well as share this episode or any posts you find interesting or useful, that would be much appreciated. I'm really grateful to my guests for giving their time and sharing their ideas for this podcast and for all the good work they do in the world. It would be wonderful if you would help share their voices more widely so there is a greater likelihood of working together towards a healthier and more nourishing world. Bob Bancroft is a wildlife biologist, writer, and media communicator. You've likely heard him on CBC. He is the current president of Nature Nova Scotia, a group of individuals and 25 organizations attempting to raise a stronger voice for nature to counter the gutting of Nova Scotia's forest and habitats. We met in his friend's house in Annapolis Valley, which, along with where I produced this episode, is the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Nature needs all the help it can get these days, quite frankly. Right. Because uh, we tend to be just flattening it. One of the things that are lacking in, in, in Nova Scotia and in North America as a whole is a land and water ethic. And the trick with all this material is to wind up talking about it and still have hope. Uh, you can't just sit back and be upset when yeah. you are, become aware of what's going on with nature. Our conversation is quite wide-ranging, and you won't be surprised that it covers some difficult realities. I hope you will keep in mind that a theme of this episode seems to be finding balance in the importance of awareness with maintaining hope, so that we can act with the knowledge and care necessary as we navigate these times together. For 48 years, Bob has nurtured former pasture land in eastern Nova Scotia back to ecological forest health, and you will hear about some of that during this episode. Well, I've been living in the same forest for 48 years now and basically trying to restore it. And it's been fun to see the changes because the, the pioneer species that were there 48 years ago are still there, but they've become old and they have holes and they're practically condos in places because there's like 10 holes in one, in one old poplar. And uh, so, but I've watched them go from young trees to being relatively old pioneer species. Yeah. And of course, I've interplanted a lot, of, a lot of other species. So I'm up to 52 tree species now in my 56 acres. And, uh, and the transition has been, for example, from, from, from poplar to, to ash, uh, two kinds of ash. Actually, I've got three, but I've been doing a lot of planting. Um, 
and 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 then it's going to oak because there's an emerald ash borer that's going to take the ashes that I have. So so the forest is already evolving, and uh, where I needed to use nest boxes before because I didn't have any large trees, now there are all kinds of holes, and I've even got starlings. I mean, there's seven species of woodpeckers in there now that I've counted, not all in one day, but but over over a period of, of years okay. uh, that have come to use the forest because it's one of the few old standing forests that are there. But uh, but what I've gradually watched on that property is it went from being grassland to pasture land, with, but they left hemlocks for shade for the animals and whatnot, okay. to, uh, to repopulated with, with a lot of maples. And, uh, and they didn't cut all the old trees, so there was an indication that there were hemlocks and yellow birch and, and, and uh, other, other things like, like sugar maple were, were, they were there. So, mm. so it's really fun to see what the animals do when, when you re, reconstitute the habitat. And I also have a backhoe, and I, I dug test holes in wet areas because when you, when you dry up the land with my clearing it, uh, you lose a lot of, of, of the water. So I've been re dealing with the water again too and uh-huh. put a test hole in watch the water level for a summer and uh, so it doesn't become a trap for amphibians and uh, I wound up with uh, flying squirrels in in my uh, in my nest boxes and now now nobody except for the barred owls the bigger birds I there are enough holes that they don't they, they're living in holes in natural trees now so so uh, and, and of course the good example of all that is that uh, trees work better if they have fungi in the soil and and uh, and, and the flying squirrels are, are noted for, for eating the fungi and then uh, gliding through the forests and spreading the fungi around in, on the soil. So they're, they're actually seeding in what the trees need to function more easily. So oh, wow. that's one quick example of, of, uh, of how bringing it back together can, can make it work. So, and, and I've also learned that uh, nutrients tend to travel down a slope a little better because rather than just sit there, the, the, the dampness, it tends to move slowly along. So mm-hmm. I've got a lot of the richer sites uh, are on the, on the valley floor and near the brook. And that's where I've planted, oh, things like butternuts and, and whatnot uh, that, that like a rich, uh, walnuts, that like rich, rich soil. So there's, uh, there is a lot of interesting uh, activity with habitats when you bring in the right species again uh, to, that animals can use. For example, acorns. Have you ever watched wa- I, the, the, the wood ducks actually come and, and pick the acorns when they're green and eat them? So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of little things that you never notice. And, and basically, where I live is, is like being in an observation blind. You can just watch all this. The otters come and go, and uh, there's a pond below the house that we built. Because you've got a house dug into a hill. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, okay. that's right. It's, it's into the side of a hill. The walls, are, uh, three walls are 18 to 22 inches thick. And it's a sandwich. It's uh, concrete with insulation on both sides. So, mm-hmm. so it stays cool. The main floor stays cool in the summer, and it doesn't freeze in the winter. Even when you're away, so wow. um, yeah, it's trying to live um, with a minimum amount of energy input, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that's another aspect to it all. But every time you flip a switch in this province, you're burning fossil fuels or or forests. Yeah. So uh, so we we went solar. Okay. Basically, mm-hmm. basically, the biomass people are ignoring the second law of thermodynamics, which means that when you change from one energy state to another, which you have to do, you boil water. Well, it gets it takes a lot of energy to get up to the boiling point. Then it takes energy to make steam. Then then the steam has to turn a turbine. Then you lose energy there, and then it makes 
go, you go through a coil and you wind up producing electricity. And, and the law of thermodynamics basically says that it's not going to be efficient because there's too many stages. Right. But one of the things I've learned in my career, Amanda, is that there's an awful lot of science that should be guiding what we do as a, as a species and mm-hmm. as a province, and it's being steadfastly ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Can you maybe help explain why you think that is happening? It's corporate capture. In, in two words, uh, just to elucidate a little, it's, it's the fact that uh, we elect the politicians of all stripes, mm-hmm. not just the current ones, mm-hmm. and they start listening to the forest industry, for example, in our case, uh, because they have some jobs. And they wind up subsidizing, so it actually costs us to give our forests away, our public forests away, as near as I can tell. They're paying more into the forest companies than the forest companies are paying province. And I think that's outrageous. It's happening in New Brunswick as well as Nova Scotia. And uh, and they just wind up uh, this whole business of jobs, jobs, jobs. But there's a d- diminishing number of jobs. Yeah. And there's a diminishing forest because it's most of it's been cut five times. And it's also public tax money that's going into that's right. like maintaining the forest roads and doing other things so that the forestry companies can yeah. come in and they used to call them robber barons, and they still are. They just don't call themselves that. They they dress themselves up mm-hmm. a little better. But the reality is that they're they're greedy, and uh, there is a way to have forests, healthy forests. A healthy forest, to get back to what you said, was one that has a variety of species that can take advantage of different situations, and and when you have a a, a rich diversity of forest species, if there's some climate change or something, you wind up with more built-in resilience. Right. I mean, there are red maples in Florida. Now, I wouldn't transplant one from Florida to here, but it's still the same species. Hmm. But the point being that there are trees that are able to tolerate a wide range of salinities and and and, and temperature and droughts and whatnot, and some are better suited than others. And I think with what's happening with the climate, we're going to wind up with a shift to deeper-rooted species. Of which, trees. Which would be mostly hardwoods? Mostly hardwoods, uh, but uh, hemlocks and, and pines are a little better okay. um, uh, in terms of uh, the rootedness. Hmm. So um, I think we still need softwoods for the winter because a lot of animals um, need to get out of the wind and the cold in the wintertime. And of course, hardwoods don't do anything in that regard. So, um, so softwood trees become really important to moose even, for example. Right. So, so ideally we would have a, a mixed species forest as, you know, the, the Wabanaki Acadian forest yes. would yeah. originally be or naturally yeah. be. And there may be intruders coming. I mean, I look to New England to see what the climate change possibilities were going to be uh, back in the 70s when I started. Okay. And uh, I brought some of the trees back up here or got a hold of them one way or another. So, um, you know, that, that, uh, it used to be that black walnuts, the terminal, primary terminal buds would be iced over, uh, uh, and, and fail. And then they, the, the side shoots would come out, but the primary one that was years ago, but now with the climate change, that's not happening anymore. Oh, wow. So you can actually visibly see that species that, uh, that used to need a, a more, a warmer climate are doing better here now. So if we, as whoever's in, in control of these things, was taking into consideration the all of these factors, including climate change, we could actually be planning maybe even well for the changes, like with some adjust, 
Yeah. Well, I don't. I, yeah, I guess that's a question. But but you were saying that based on the current forestry practices, we're becoming less prepared than we would be if we hadn't Absolutely. done anything by far. Yeah, they're favoring uh, shallow rooted species like spruce and fir that are, and they're not really favoring fir, but they come up in what they do with the clear cuts. So, and of course they're disguising the clear cuts with other terms, but they're still clear cuts in terms of dryness and heat of the soil, sun reaching the forest floor and killing off the organic layer and and uh, then the rain's washing it away. So, so yeah, there there's there's a whole aspect to that change which is actually turning it into more of a boreal forest, more simplistic and more susceptible. Mm. And the irony is uh, the red spruce is our provincial tree. And it's probably doomed because it won't do well in the in, in the, the coming. Droughts. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've I've heard you s refer um, to current forestry as mining of the forest in instead of management. That's what it is. Oh, when I get upset, I call it skinny it alive because that's what actually it does: is it kills all the plants and and all the animals that used to live in it. And and I guess sometimes the animals can go other places, but other times they can't. Yeah, and if there's another good place to go, you can bet that those same animals are probably already there. And then you get into a territorial battle, mm. and uh, and and you wind up with the refugees that can't find a home, and they usually just quietly die. I've actually had, for example, forest technicians who weren't working for me out in the woods, and they found a bear hibernating in a dip in a clear cut because they got no other place to go. Oh, so sad, yeah. And yeah. You can't, I can't really help them. But the guy was so shocked that he called me. And, and But that's the kind of thing that's happening. And those animals just don't probably make it. Uh, okay. But we don't do... No, I really I, believe we should be sharing this problems with other species that are well-suited to be here. <laughs> but we seem to be have a, a string of political people from different stripes that really don't give a damn. So, so this is something I, I'm often wondering about or feel confused about because I have this belief that I sometimes worry is naive, but I do seem to think, I mean, one of the reasons I called my podcast Shared Ground is because mm -hmm. I thought, you know, underneath all, you know, our differences in behavior and thinking, there there must be some sort of shared values that most humans hold. And I, I guess greed can taint things, but I I still think most people must you know, care about the futures of their children. Most people like to be outdoors. Most people, you know, like to breathe clean air to get really basic. Like what are the kind of underlying things that sort of can span our... I, I see people changing. I see young people that are scared to death about their future, uh, which is not very productive. Uh, the trick is to come up with... I know to tell... Uh, when uh, I, Back in the 1970s, when I became a regional biologist... There was an oil embargo, and a bunch of us were in a van going to a meeting, a biologist meeting in Newfoundland, and we didn't know whether we were going to get the gas to get back. And you know, that was a really good thing for me to be experienced of, because uh, in the end, I bought 56 acres, and it was fairly good farmland with the forest on it as well, and it was next to a harbor, and it was a south-facing hill, so I could do solar when it became... And so... I think it's time for folks to, and I designed a house that the power bill was two bucks a day and we were living well before I put in the solar. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, why are we doing this if it's two bucks a day? And I said, because every time we flip a switch, we're burning fossil fuels or, or, or forests. 
and and uh, so so to me, the ethics are really important. And what's wrong here is people have a sense that if I don't get it, somebody else will, and they're just going at nature like there's no tomorrow. And we learned with the cod that it's not endless, and we've learned with with the forest that it's not endless, but they just want to keep on doing and mm-hmm. and. Half of this province, the people are becoming aware. We've gone in Nature Nova Scotia. When I took over a few years back, there were seven groups. Now we've, we're 25. There are more and more people that are well-informed and aware, and that's the hope I have with what you're doing and other people are doing to publicize the reality that we're facing. Because if you do care, and most people do, it's time we became better stewards of the land. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really something that's necessary, and not only the land, but the water. And we've we've done terribly with the areas along the waterways. That's the way, easy way to say riparian zones. You were describing about how you've restored where you live to to a healthier forest, and yeah. and it's yeah. supporting more habitat. And I'm just curious, how much land in our region is healthy forest like that? Would you say either naturally or because it's becoming restored? Well, it's hard for me to know, but it's a very small amount uh, when you look at less than 0.0 something or other of a percent of old growth forest left. Right. Um, but you do have the parks, the federal and the provincial parks, uh-huh. and the wilder- some of the wilderness areas. So there's some, some but, but the problem there, Amanda, is that we need ecologically healthy working forests so animals can pass from one conservation area to another. Mm-hmm. And what we're getting instead are an impasse. If you look at the, at the, uh, Kejimkujik, Tobiatic area. Um, if you were a pine marten in there and you were trying to move, um, there's some some for- global forest watch images that they'll turn the recent clear cuts pink around an area. Yeah. It's just a flood of pink around a lot of these areas like like Kejimkujik National Park. Hmm. So uh, any any animal that any ne- needed a, a mature forest to travel is basically locked in. And that's what happens when you don't have ecologically healthy working forests is that you wind up with frog populations that can't get to the pond. You wind up, or the pond's gone. You just wind up with a whole bunch of, of species that uh, no longer function. In fact, really, you don't need a PhD to figure out that going from a mature forest to a clear cut is too drastic a change. Yeah, It just doesn't and a lot of people get that, which is why we come up with signs about stop clear cutting, even though they say they're not clear cutting. They are, in fact. Okay, well, maybe this is something we could talk about briefly. Maybe briefly, I don't know, <laughs> but um, I know there had been in some, you know, within the last year, some more um, implementations of aspects of the the Leahy recommendations, yeah. and so are we at least going in the right direction, or how? Have things really improved much, do you think? On the ground, not much. And I think Mr. Leahy meant well. And I think that the uh, people that put together the the uh, SGM, as they call it, the Silviculture Guide to the Ecological Matrix, which hasn't been declared yet. Like, they keep just fumbling along. Um, and, but the uh, intent is good. The trick is that on the ground, they cut too much. If you look at Goldsmith Lake, which is not far from here, um, uh, they cut a, a 30-meter-wide roadway in for two kilometers in right through the middle of the forest. Now, if if you look at how forests function and you look at the kind of winds we're getting, Fiona and whatnot, all that does is create a, a toppling effect. Mm. 
and and it, it's it's a clear cut again. And then they're going to go in. And so to get back to what you're getting at, the theory is great on the ground. They're cutting too much. And now they want to go in after the windstorm. And they left a, a sprinkling of trees through it all or a clump in some cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the winds have just knocked these things over. So now they're going to go in and salvage cut. Mm-hmm. So they took too much to begin with. The trick is to keep maintain a reasonable canopy. Um, um, I I just gave a, a property in New Brunswick to Nature Trust in New Brunswick. And the trees are about 30 meters spaced out apart. And if you look at the early Titus Smith and some of the other historians, they walked through the forests of Nova Scotia in the shade for days because the canopy was closed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what we need to do is is instead of t- selling trees for thirty bucks a ton or something, is 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 to grow individual trees and cut them down individually and and where I took my training as an FSC uh, uh, auditor, uh, a skidder would go by with four logs and one of them would be a, ch- a cherry veneer log that was worth eight hundred dollars at the mill, instead of so much a ton. Wow. And and we're capable of growing. I I processed a black walnut tree that I planted not too long ago because it was shading my house too much. Uh, solar passive solar wasn't working, and it was fifteen inches. And if you go to a lumber store and try to price um, any kind of hardwood, whether it be sugar maple or or yellow birch or whatever, it's worth a small fortune. So so we've we've turned this whole thing into a pulp con. We need to turn it upside down and, and start managing hardwoods. Because they're the deeper rooted trees generally that that will do better in this coming climate crisis, mm. and and so there's a lot to that needs to be done, and 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 uh, we know how to do it. What I find is there's just general ignorance, and and people aren't willing. Um, people they, they they want to keep using this big machinery when you can't. It doesn't. It's not suited to selection cutting. Yeah, is that part of it? Like there's been so much money invested in these giant machines yeah. that now yeah. it's hard to back up yeah. because they have to make their money back from that or something. Yeah, it's just too much of a. And they want to keep the price low so that if I want to grow uh, uh, trees for them, they don't want to pay much for it. So therefore, you've got to go in a clear cut because it's the only. It's the most economical way. So they've backed themselves right into a corner. And then they're trying to blame everybody but themselves. But it's happened since the 1700s. So, so you can see a way out, though, by managing for higher value, uh, higher va- both ecologically and, and um, that's right, and monetarily value trees. Yeah, but it would be a long term shift. Is that um, well? I've done it for 48 years, where we are right now, and yeah. and it's interesting because I've got lots of oaks which have acorns. I've got hazelnuts which have nuts. The beech trees are threatened by this new leaf mining weevil that's that's come out. There was an old beech issue that came over from Europe. Mm. So I don't know what's going to happen there. But I've got, for example, uh, disease resistant elms that I that that I've I've planted and grown. So um, I think the future is it can be a good forest, but the forest isn't moving fast enough. And I think I I I'm very scared about humans pretending they're God and knowing enough to do. So what I've done is 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 tickle the forest a little, as 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 a G. W. Creighton said, a fellow who was a deputy minister and a rather smart man. Uh, just do little things in the forest and watch, and 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 uh, when it works right, well then, go ahead, uh, because one can get ideas that don't always fit, uh-huh. and, yes. and that happens okay. to me, uh, as as everybody else. But uh, but then when you get something that works, and and you can learn from the science. 
that that uh, certain trees like rich environments, and that's where you plant them and uh, go from there. And uh, lots of wild animals come because they've been displaced from other places. Mm -hmm. So the place is almost too filled up. I've had goshawks freaking out because there's a bald eagle nest nearby. Wow. And uh, and and uh, really, you wind up with a lot of predators because they've got no place to go. I had a contractor save hollow logs uh, for me because people don't want to buy firewood that's mostly missing in the middle. <laughs> And I hauled them out with a tractor and then rolled them off in the woods where the otter tracks were. Huh. So there'd be denning sites for mink and the otter and mm. other animals. So there's, and I even built a bear den and, and a, 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 a female came. And uh, anyway, and I planted all kinds of apple trees too, because wild apple trees are a great wildlife tree. So, hmm. so, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of fun things you can do if you want to look after a piece yeah. of land. Yeah, well, that's a, that maybe that's something we could talk about too. I digress too easily. I'm sorry. Oh no, I that's great though. There's just so much to talk about, and I'm really I think whatever we talk about will be useful and interesting for people to to listen to and consider. So just from what you were saying, for people who are owners or stewards of forest land, um, two easy things that one could do would be to not cut down your deadwood tree, right? To leave. That's right. So, so leave standing leave, deadwood. Leave standing deadwood. And maybe even fallen deadwood is also useful. Yes. That's where the yellow birch and the hemlocks grow on top of those moldering skeletons of, of the trees. Huh. And, and that's what they're well suited to do. And when you think about it, for thousands of years, trees grew and fell and recycled into new trees. And the idea right now that after a storm, you've got to clean everything up is really quite foreign to me. Yeah, it seems more like a human aesthetic than um, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm going through our trails and just opening up cutting cutting a section out so I can keep on traveling the trails uh, yeah. and and leaving the rest because the salamanders and the bears mm -hmm. and the raccoons will and the skunks will take care of it. Okay. In my place I built had my wife follow me at a safe distance from the the, the land was too tightly it was too dense. The pastures were growing in with a, a lot of trees in one small area. So so I thinned it out uh, and favored a lot of the hardwoods in the course of doing that and whatnot. But she followed me and she built brush piles. And the very first one she built the next morning, there was a rabbit one jump away from it, or snowshoe hare. Um, I put in rock piles and sunny edges of the fields. Uh, and when I had to move one to build a garage a number of years ago, there were three kinds of snakes in that one little rock pile. And one of them is one that eats mostly slugs. So we have a greenhouse, an attached pit greenhouse, and slugs are a problem. And that's, you know, the, so this, the, you can work with wildlife. That's the trick is to work with the forces of nature. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there are other things I did was 30 years before the bear came, I planted uh, uh, trees in the forest, apple trees in the forest. And and again, I've planted... Uh, hazelnut trees because they're they're little filiberts but they're 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 still a very useful thing for and 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 certainly the beech nuts are were were good too so uh, there's a lot of things you can do for animals to help so and i don't manage the forest in a way that's uniform uh, i leave dense stands of softwoods uh, there's a place in the south facing hill where the deer spend all winter and the coyotes come and harass them a bit but but uh but generally speaking, there's lots of deer. So um, you can actually manage the forest for uh, woodcock. I, uh, uh, there's, there's one of the nice things that 
you can do now is just go on online and nest boxes are a piece of cake. Bat boxes are easy to come up with and they've redesigned them for females having their young. So there's all kinds of information to, and, and, and things that can be done on, on a property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, okay, so we should talk about, because we were talking a little bit about the current forestry practices and you were mm-hmm. saying water protection is important yes. as land. Okay. First of all, we shouldn't be clear cutting, uh, but people are. It's it's cheap and quick, and it's disastrous to the ecology. And and they're in Nova Scotia, it's twenty meters to stay away. Well, on, twenty on, meters to stay away from the water. Stay away okay. from the where the water is. I think yeah. it's more than fifty centimeters across the brook. Um, if I have clients, and I do, and I'm managing their land, re- recommending them manage their land, they're not clear cutting. So you could actually cut within. A twenty meter thing, and just but you keep the canopy closure. You just allow. It's like one tree finally falling down, and you get that out of there. You snig it, and we've got a, a tra- I've got a tractor with a, a long winch on the back. Um, there are ways of harvesting, but right now, with the way they're cutting, we should be leaving a hundred meters at least. And actually, I wound up getting you a couple of things here. This is the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers mm-hmm. uh, publication, which is ironic for me because they've perhaps done more damage when channelizing rivers in North America than anybody else. But they know that that if you're a bird, you need a certain width. They've got guidelines that you should you should not cut within a certain distance, and they're way more than twenty meters or thirty meters, like New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Those are simply compromises between government or government ignoring the science and going with what the industry wants and the industry wants too little okay so so the buffers are currently a, the, 20 the, meters a third oh a fifth less than fifth than what, what science be. is yeah. saying and even on top of that they sometimes even push it and and break the law yeah the, the laws tend to be window dressing what we have in the way of wildlife guidelines are ridiculously in, in inappropriate <laughs> and 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 uh um, and, and actually, some of the recommendations are for a thousand feet. Um, I wow. mean, of course, it's American. Uh, it depends on what you're managing for. So, um, in terms of the buffer zones, we're basically not doing anything that's adequate. And I want a really good example for that would be that in boreal forests up north, in order to, to uh, get a mainland mo- a moose, to move through those forests, you've got to leave 50 to 60 meters. So in other words, at 20 meters, moose won't even, it's too transparent for them to travel through. And of course they blow down anyway. So so the, the existing rules reflect in no way what the science is saying we should be doing. Despite all sorts of scientists like yourself trying to make them aware, why aren't, why aren't they listening? Okay, it's, it's greed. But it just seems like they're not even getting that much. Well, it's interesting because uh, there's a friend that I had in, in Maine, and she calculated how much uh, would be lost if you added so much to the riparian zone. And it's in this number of 10 or 15%. Hmm. But you're talking to somebody who actually used to stand there with the Port Hawkesbury paper people, and they signed an agreement 20 years before and said that they could cut right to the water's edge. 
And when I asked the technician, I said, would you please leave some trees along this stream? Where are you going to get it from somewhere else? You've got to give us more land so we can get it. That was their attitude. And that's still their attitude is they, they're oh. entitled. The government just gives them the right to do these things. And right now, the northern pulp, they don't even have a mill working anymore. And they're cutting forests and the agreement's up in July. They're going to renew for all the land that Scott Paper got originally. The crown land has been has been devoted to them, and and they're just massacring it. I mean, I could take you to a spot where there were mainland moose, Canada warblers. They're they're on the endangered species list, and boreal felt lichens on the site. It was public land. The company knew, and they just flattened it. Mm. They have no. The dollar bill trumps common sense, and it's out of sight, out of mind. So uh, there are responsible forestry people, but they're not the ones we're giving the giving our crown land to. So, so what needs to happen? What can <clears throat> the agreements should be retracted, and and uh, uh, shouldn't be renewed. And they just renewed the Port Hawkesbury paper one. No. Um, the landscape level planning. Isn't been done. We haven't talked about that. But I mean, when you're got an animal like a lichen, it lives from moisture off a lake and, and in a forest environment, and and they they should be leaving more of the forest because there's an in, an edge effect that goes into a, a forest, and and there's known factors there in terms of how much you should leave, but that's ignored. But when it comes to things like mainland moose, they need a, a, a mature forest to escape the heat in the summer and a mature softwood forest to escape the cold in late winter. Well, that's what the targets of the pulp companies are. They just cut them down. And they need a mature forest to be able to move through, and then they need patches of younger forest and lakes with aquatic vegetation where they can get nutrients and vitamins so that they don't get off the terrestrial plants. So, But what we've what they're doing now is they're turning – they're turning that mature forest into clear cuts and leaving clumps of forest in a sea of clear cuts. And, and that's just... So are the clumps doing any good to anybody? A not little, really. No. Not really. Maybe the odd red-tailed hawk that can sit there and look over the, over the clear cut to see a mouse. Mm. I mean, you can't say no, but it's not, there's not enough left to, to develop any kind of an interior coolness. And most of them blow down if you watch them. So, so those leaving of the clumps is more to appease the the people that are concerned than anything. Would I don't you think say, the people or? who leave them even appease appease them. But it's, that's the one thing that the legislation passed was that you should leave some old trees. Mm. But the way they're leaving them, actually, I had uh, forestry people from the companies want me to put. They wanted to put the clumps on the edge so the helicopter could spray herbicide over the rest more easily. Uh. I mean, that's the attitude that a lot of them have. So, so it's, it's 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 not the kind of management. It's, it's mismanagement. Yeah. So it's a whole, I mean, it's it's just hard to understand for people like those of us that really care about the rest of mm -hmm. nature or feel that we're part of the natural world. It's hard to even fathom how someone would ever think it's a good idea to put, I mean, I know what you're saying about, you know, greed and the, uh, the culture, I guess, but so, so it feels like, like, um, a, a, a worldview 
a shift needed like at the you're right base level so so is that kind of where people could be putting their efforts somehow and what it should the- be uh, they're starting to talk about scrapping the industry out in bc and starting over again with a different kind of forestry wow. and that's somewhat what we need here it's interesting that mr Leahy in his report said that we need a paradigm shift not just a gradual shift, but a paradigm shift. And it's not happening. But those words were exactly what Donna and I put in our recommendations for a new forest strategy back in 2010, when the government asked us to put science to the public will for change. There was a, a voluntary planning group, a third-party group that did a, a consulting process around the entire province back in 2008. It, it captured the public will to, to get away from clear-cutting. And uh, then Donna and I and a fellow from uh, Bowwater were asked as scientists to, to, to voice that, put the science to the public will for change, so, which we tried to do, and we were steadfastly ignored. Mm-hmm. So that's a long story you don't need to know. Well, uh, but yeah. basically, um, we do need better for Um you, you wind up with compromises here, like 100 meters, 330 feet is, is not... It's not the answer, but it's something mm-hmm. if people are going to clear cut. And, right. and I would rather prefer that they didn't clear cut and they did selection cuts and patch cuts. And if you do them in small circles, about as wide as the trees are high, then you don't wind up with a lot of solar gain on the forest floor and you have a local seed source. And, and there's, there are ways to do forestry where the forest stays healthy and all the things that animals need from dying trees and fallen trees can be kept. And uh, I've seen this in northern Wisconsin, for example, where the Menominee Indians have been doing it now for 170 years. And, and they're just lightly cutting and getting valuable wood out, but leaving plenty for everybody. Mm. So it can be done, but we're just interested in skinning the woods alive here. And also, it, it's going to get to the end of the line pretty soon, right? That that there's going to be nothing left, and no one's going to benefit anymore. Yeah, we, so we talk about deforestation in in, in in the Amazon, but when you look at uh, all creatures great and small on television, for example, what you see is a beautiful pastoral landscape, but they cut the trees down, they put grazing animals out, and now there's nothing but rocks and grass, and there's very poor soil up in the upper reaches. And that's a temperate climate like our own, well, Nova Scotia, New Scotland. Um, and they were down to, th- to uh, I think they're up to 16% trees now, but half of those are plantations. So we could very easily run out of uh, nutrients here. Uh, calcium in our soils is a problem. Uh, there's acid rain still, and especially in western Nova Scotia. Um, the salmon stopped coming up the rivers because of the pH, and the soils are too too poor to to modify the acid rain enough to to make the pH better. So, uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of issues here that aren't being dealt with effectively. Mm-hmm. And they hire the people on. We've got the wildlife division and the biologists, and they've got a not really good soils person. But I think I hear he's leaving because, uh, to my mind, they're just not li- they're not walking the talk. Mm. On the ground, so they do have some some good ethical people working for them, but yes. they're not necessarily even listening to them. No, 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 no. So, okay. So, what's the role of the public? What, as an individual, can we do? If you care about the world right now, and some people are scared to death, uh, don't be. Uh, but we are in a serious time, 
And you should become more and more aware of, of what's going on around you and the world around you and how it's affected, whether it's Hemlock Willie Adelgid down here or whatever. It doesn't take, I mean, there's, there's lots of lines of communication these days. Um, and in some ways, when you go on the internet, you don't know what's real and what isn't. But, but the fact is there is some good science that has been around for some time that isn't being used. And I think what we've got to do is actually get the level of awareness up so that people can push the politicians to change. Because the politicians won't change if there isn't support. Okay. So are there like, you know, if we had to simplify things and say there was one or maybe three things that we would, each of us could ask our politicians to do or change, what would what would we ask of them? Well, right now we're cutting the forest every 40 years. And, and I can't find any literature to support that other than uh, just the fact that if all you think about is growing fiber, but on public land, that's not what that's not what the goal should be. And even Leahy said ecologically healthy should be first, should be restoring properties like what I've been doing for for 48 years. And it's a lot of money. So it's better to work with what's still there instead of going out and cutting the very best forests that are left on public land right now, which is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, yeah, uh, it's a long and expensive process to, to claw back to ecologically healthy again. And, uh, but we do know that we need deeper rooted trees because of the droughts and wind firm trees. So there's lots to run with here. And, uh, instead what they're doing is clear cutting and just letting whatever comes back, comes back. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, climate change is so much more in everyone's minds now and people are aware. And then, so if, if the connection was more strongly made between the health of the forests and climate change, not affecting you know, yeah. us so badly. And also it must be economical considerations with that too, right? If if roads are washing out or, you know, things are being polluted that might not have been if there were healthy forests around and like all those costs that we could we could avoid. So, so that's the kind of thing, I guess. To give you another example, the Bay of Fundy salmon are an endangered population and DFO has jurisdiction over salmon because they're anadromous apparently. And they, they've been doing different things over the years that I won't get into. But there's a place called the Big Salmon River where these a few of these salmon come up. Well, the Irvings, I'll just be blunt here, uh, came up with a five-year plan to cut the forest in the watershed, what the land that drains into the Big Salmon River is called a watershed. And, and, uh, and they, they had a plan to cut some, and they did, and then they kept on cutting. Well, what what you wind up with is a sum, uh, in the summertime you get water that's too hot. Salmon start to suffocate underwater when when the temperature gets to twenty five degrees Celsius, roughly. Um, uh, what happens is the ability of the water to hold oxygen becomes less as it heats up. So they literally don't have oxygen enough in the water, and I can measure like thirty degree temperatures in some of our water courses now. And have been for many years. So the water warms up and then it dries up because the forest isn't there to hold. So we, we aren't treating the whole waterway as a unit. So the, the, the forestry people can decimate the forest and flatten it and plunder it and leave it to overheat. And then when the rains come, it washes all the organics down the system. And the very food chain that the animals need, the salmon need, uh, is bypassed because it just flushes away all the nutrients instead of slowly leaching them out, and 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 then the 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 the, the river overheats on its main stem, and and dries up and looks like a Roman road, just just a bunch of cobble, 
So, uh, and, and DFO sits back and lets that happen. And the Irvings aren't held accountable for what they're doing. And that, in a nutshell, is what's happening all over the place. Right. So, so that seems like another important question with a difficult answer, probably. But how, how do these people become held accountable? They, they are only accountable within their own range. And what's happening is they have a hard time agreeing amongst themselves, let alone like the wildlife division should be integrated with, with the forestry people who are planning the cuts. But what I'm told right now is, and I do have people feeding me information that don't want to be quoted, but there's not even a proper inventory to know what they're cutting on crown land right now. Mm. So they're just going out picking land that, I mean, you can you can see from aerial photographs or satellite images where there's still some forest and just go cut it. Yeah. And, and uh, so there's no planning. And for example, the Wildlife Division had a landscape level planning process that they bought in called Patchworks many years ago. And Port Hawkesbury Paper didn't want them to use it. So they didn't. They were told not to. But if you're planning for moose that are using, you know, 15, 20 hectares and more all over the place in a traditional moose area and has been for 40 some odd years, uh, you need to plan some harvests in junction with the adjoining you need to think on a large scale area, and and uh, they're not doing that. They're 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 not even allowed to do it. They can only look at the piece of land that they're going to cut. Well, that means you can have all kinds of land being cut right around it. So so there are some really horrible things that are going on, and landscape level planning is one of the basic things that that uh, they refuse to do because that means they'd have to cut less. So that's another thing we could be writing our politicians about that yeah. we want yeah. landscape. Stop clear cutting. Um, wider buffer zones. Uh, the wildlife regulations came in roughly in the 80s. I was working in Halifax office at the time, and uh, they weren't well explained, but we need better ones too. So like, uh, it's one thing to carve out a, a couple of circles around a goshawk nest, but if they don't have the forest to hunt in, the nest is not going to be successful. Um, on, on the Government of Canada website, I, I was looking at that earlier, and, and I'm just quoting here from it. It says, it's the responsibility of Environment and Climate Change Canada to develop and implement policies and regulations to ensure the protection of migratory birds, their eggs, and their nests. Mm -hmm. And that's been a regulation that's been in effect since like early 1900s, right? Yeah. And so that's just another crazy thing that these laws exist, and yet they're being broken. They're being broken deliberately. Uh, Okay, so so maybe you started off by saying how we have to be aware of what's happening, and we also have to maintain hope somehow. Mm -hmm. So so maybe that's what we could um, end on. End on how? Yeah, how, how do you find hope? You know, you've been working so diligently on this for so long. I guess what you've got to do is is uh, learn to put it in place. Uh, I'm I'm too sensitive a person to be honest, and it does bother me. And but. Uh, what I do is is go out for a walk on uh, in the wilderness, and I think wilderness is some place that people belong. It's where nature is the guiding force, and we're not. And First Nations people did it very nicely. They were part of of the wilderness, and uh, so so I, I, what I do is go back and recharge my batteries. I mean, basically, you wind up with an energy level low, and you're pessimistic. And I can go out. And listen to uh, chickadees and crows. And uh, the other day, I was taking uh, 
most guards off from the orchard trees and and a red-tailed hawk showed up and and uh, there were five deer yesterday morning in front of the house uh pruners <laughs> and uh, uh the pileated woodpeckers around and i come back smiling and uh, we have lots worth saving yet there's stuff worth fighting for that nature is still hanging on with and uh and it's it there's some resilience there so when you when you uh, create a, a good space a good ecological space you're going to have lots of candidates coming to visit mm. that's the thing and that you get the biodiversity back the the richness of species coming in so uh, and if if you own land that's a thing to do and i guess if you don't Hopefully, you've got a space somewhere where you can go to. So, so find your place in nature because uh, I think Richard Love was right. Uh, nature, nature deficit disorder is an issue with a lot of people. And uh, learn to feel really at home and tune in. The smells, the sounds, the sights. Mm. Um, sure beats being in a shopping mall. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So that's that serves a dual purpose. You go outside, go for a walk, feel yeah. um, re-nourished and also feel re like remember why this is important to to yeah. get your battery back up so you can advocate f- for the rest of Yeah, and I don't feel alone anymore. There are an awful lot of people like yourself and Donna and you know, there there are a growing number of people that are beginning to realize that uh, that our our public lands are being fleeced for private profit and and that's got to stop. And if we have to get rid of that department, although the premiers t- take over on these things, they have, no matter what the, we saw it with Daryl Dexter and the NDP, we saw it with Stephen McNeil, and uh, um, they don't have our ear, and it's time they listened. Mm-hmm. So this is the project. This is an important yeah. mission for all of us who mm-hmm. care about. The big trick is they they can't ignore the people that elect them. And I'm thinking more and more people, I'm hoping that more and more people are realizing that what's been going on here is, is uh, the problem is nobody lived for 300 years. If you saw what the forest was like 300 years ago, and now everybody was saying, what in the heck happened? But uh, we grow up with uh, rivers that are broken. We grow up with forests that are healing. Actually, that's the, what the new forest is trying to do, is heal of soil so it'll grow good trees again. And it's nature's way of reacting to to fires or, or clear cuts. But a fire is not the same as a clear cut because a fire, the, the all the ashes and all the trees go back into the ground and start a new crop. And Whereas we keep just taking the bowls away. The bowls uh, meaning the trunks of the, the trees. The trunks of the trees, yeah. yeah. And there's like, for every ton of wood fiber removed, there's six pounds of phosphates that are critical in the low supply in our soils. They go with it. They used to be recycled if the tree just fell down and went into the forest floor. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of science. I think people should turn tune in and uh, and then do something. Do something, yeah. There's all sorts of creative things to do, probably, and band together with other people. Yeah, and, and, and like you fun. said, you can find good human community too with others yeah. um, who who care, right. which is probably, I mean, so many people care. So that's another thing that could give us hope. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Thank you for very your very much, Bob. When I speak to someone like Bob, who is so knowledgeable about ecology and all the problems that we're facing, I find it a little hard, sometimes, not to get overwhelmed. The balance seems so precarious between having enough awareness to feel compelled to take action and to maintain hope so that we are able to have the mental and emotional well-being necessary to be able to take action. 
the part about recharging our own batteries seems so vital so that we are not just silent and depressed in the face of all the injustices, but can somehow find our own bit of power, whatever it may be, and be part of the greater collective of people who are co-creating a more healthy world for all species, including humans. I felt particularly struck by Bob's wording that when a forest is clear-cut, the animals die quietly. The animals can't just go somewhere else. Either there is nowhere else to go, or if there is, that habitat is already inhabited by other creatures. Related to this, I think it is so important that not only do we realize that the destruction of the forests is killing all the animals whose home it was, and to advocate for them, but also that clear-cutting is contributing to the harms humans will face through the carbon being released into our atmosphere and the issues related also to waterways. Protecting our forests and developing good forestry practices is good for all of us. As always, I guess my hope is that there are enough of us that will continue to be a voice for the forests, to protect them however we can, and to remember there are so many of us who care and are working on this, but that we are all needed. From May 26th to 28th, there are great opportunities for recharging our batteries, as there is a celebration of nature happening with guided hikes throughout the province. To see what's happening, head to www naturens.ca. I've put the link in the show notes, as well as the ideas that were discussed in this episode for things that would be helpful to each writer politicians about. Related to the balance of awareness and hope, I wanted to share a quick update from Nina Newington regarding the Save Our Old Forests campaign, which began recently in Annapolis County, and that you can hear more about in a few previous Shared Ground episodes. The Save Our Old Forest campaign is expanding now to other counties. Here's Nina. So it's um, been really exciting having the Save Our Old Forest campaign. Um, In Annapolis County, we've got the art show, the For the Love of Lichens and Old Forests. Then we've had a workshop about species at risk birds and a workshop about lichens. And coming up in June is a whole new second round of the show. And um, we're going to have a conversation, a joy, art, science activism conversation sort of to talk about what drives us and also what keeps us going and connects us um i'm here today on the south shore in blockhouse outside chicory blue which is a fabulous outfit um seeing the beginning of the SUF campaign rollout in lunenburg county um it's already happening in kings county where we had this wonderful experience of a group who put on a chorus, a concert every year for the last 12 years, the North Mountain Chorus, just contact us and say, hey, we'd like to make you the beneficiaries of, of the donations for this concert. Um, and I went and it was amazing. It was the United Church in Berwick and it was absolutely filled to the gills of people and this lovely concert that was all about the songs of the land. It was about connection to place. Um, got to talk for 15 minutes about the campaign and just have just tremendous support from people and that sense of people wanting something to do and not being quite sure what to do and thinking well actually saving the old forest we have left on public land is a fairly simple place to start that helps with both climate change and nature loss and it's not going to be enough but it's something 
you know and and when we come together and do stuff that we really enjoy whether it's an art show or a concert or listening to a concert um, we're also making the community of people who care and we look at each other and see that we care and that makes it easier to deal with these rather dire times than sitting by yourself and feeling alone so i think to me that's a very big part of the saber old forest campaign is just to be connecting as people who care about a place and seeing how we can help the place and help each other. Right. So basic, So you've got three different um, counties now mm-hmm. um, starting this campaign and some others maybe uh, about to start. Yep, Cape Breton, the North Shore. Um, yeah, we've, we're really... Uh, people are very interested in doing this, you right. know, and looking for something that's not complicated mm-hmm. and that people can sort of grab onto and say, yes, okay, I, I'd like to help with that. And two of the main things I'm remembering that uh, the ways that people can contribute, one would be to find a petition and sign it. Mm-hmm. And the other would be if you're a business and you want to support the campaign, you can put the logo on the SUF website. That's and right. so um, for people that want to find a petition in their mm-hmm. area, or if they want to be involved in helping start the campaign for their mm-hmm. county, if it doesn't yet exist, they could find information on that or they will be able to at some point in the mm-hmm. near future on the, on the uh, SUF website. Is yeah. that right? And that's arlingtonforestprotection.ca slash SOOF. I think if you put in Arlington Forest Protection and S-O-O-F, SOOF, it'll get you there. That was Nina Newington, one of the folks working on the Save Our Old Forests campaign. And one of the new locations where you can drop by and sign the petition is at Chicory Blue in Blockhouse. Do visit the website arlingtonforestprotection.ca for more news on the SUF campaign rolling out across the province and what you can do to help. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.